Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our dap today, Masachet Yabamot, dap vav, page six. So one of the things Ann and I noticed as we were prepping this dap is there's sort of been the same theme over the last few dapim. Basically, the Gemara is taking uh, a particular principle and trying to figure out if one type of mitzvah overrides another type of mitzvah. And they go through a variety of different permutations of this, right? Can a regular positive commandment override a prohibition? What is that? What happens in the case of, uh, of karate, right? Where the particular punishment that we're talking about is karate. Um, and then on this step, it gets into a discussion about what can override Shabbat. So I just sort of want to point out sort of that structural theme of what's going on here. And the way they try to prove each of these cases is, you know, they sort of bring a hal- one halakha and they try to say like, does this halakha or the way we learn this law, does it prove the, you know, does it prove the principle that we're trying to prove or does it not prove the principle that we're trying to prove? Um, but what I want to focus on and read here is an interesting piece that appears at the bottom of Amud Bet. And they're discussing this pasuk of uh, the et chapter. The bottom of Amud Aleph, no? I'm oh, sorry. Excuse me. Et chapter Right, so this is a pasuk from Vayikra, chapter 19, verse 30, that says, you shall keep my Shabbatot and revere my, you know, my, my Mikdash, revere my sanctuary. And, you know, the Gemara is puzzled by this pasuk because part of what they're trying to talk about here is that the halakha, that the building of the Mikdash doesn't override the prohibition um, against, you know, driving an animal on Shabbat. But in other words, that you can't build the Migdash on Shabbat, basically, is what the idea is. It's actually derived from the case of honoring uh, one's parents. And so the Gemara basically wants to know, right, right? Like, why do we, do we really need, you know, what's the story with this actual Pasuk? And then they quote this very interesting Brisa, right? As we learned in a Brisa, right? So it says, Somebody could have thought that a person, right, should fear uh, the Mikdash itself. In other words, would sort of fear the Mikdash in a way the Mikdash itself would actually be worshipped, okay? Talmud Lamar, right? But the Pasuk tells us, and now they quote this Pasuk from Vayikra that we just, you know, chapter 19, verse 30. <speaking in Hebrew> Right, that uh, you shall keep my Shabbatot and revere my sanctuary. Right, so the this idea uh, that you know uh, of you shall keep right Tishmaru is is stated with or is connected to Shabbat, and the idea of Yira right of reverence is stated with the Mikdash. Right. So just as in the case of keeping, right, of Shmirah, right, of keeping the laws of Shabbat is stated with regard to Shabbat, you do not revere Shabbat itself, right? There's no idea of Yira with Shabbat. Ella Mimashi Hizahir al Hashabbat, Af Muraha Muraba Mikdash, Lomi Mikdash Atamitra, Mashi Shehizahir al Mikdash. But rather, right, one reveres, right, someone has Yira, right, we have Yira for the person who commanded us to keep Shabbat. In other words, it's not that you're supposed to be fearful of willing to have reverence for Shabbat itself, 
but it's that you have reverence for God who commands a Shabbat. And therefore, the same thing, the reverence that we have with the Beit HaMikdash itself, it's not that you revere the temple itself, but rather the person who warns about the temple. So in other words, what they're trying to say here is that having this pasuk where Shmirat Shabbat, right, keeping Shabbat is juxtaposed or is put next to uh, this idea of revering the temple, we're supposed to learn something about how we keep Shabbat, right? We keep Shabbat, not because we have reverence for Shabbat, but because we're keeping one of the laws that God gave us, right? We have reverence for God. And therefore, that's the type of reverence we're supposed to have towards the temple. It's not about the temple, but it's about the reverence we have towards God. And so then the Gemara adds, So what is the reverence of the temple? What does that actually mean? So then they basically list a set of sort of halachot of how we act around the temple itself. Right, A person should not go to the temple mount with his staff, with his shoes, with his money belt, or even dust on his feet. So even though you're not allowed to wear shoes, your feet actually have to be uh, clean, right? Right? And you also should not make it a shortcut. Like you can't pass through uh, the Temple Mount just to get from one place to another place shorter, right? And so then it says that there's a Kalva Homer right? That even spinning, you're not allowed to do, right? So in other words, the other items are not even things that would be even perceived as being like somewhat disrespectful, right? So if you're not even allowed to do those things where there's no disrespect in those actions at all, right? Wearing shoes, not wearing shoes is, or is not a particularly disrespectful action, right? But, um, but therefore, so spitting, which is disrespectful, obviously you cannot do you cannot do spitting as well. And then the Gemara And what I would say that this, you know, this series of laws that they uh, mentioned about the Temple Mount itself, maybe this is only when the Temple is standing, right? But how do we know that even when the Beit HaMikdash is not standing, that you still would have to do these things? I mean, it's a great question. What it's basically asking is, is that, even when the temple isn't there, is there a type of reverence we have to show for the idea that the temple could have been there? And so then again, they quote the same pasuk, Tamud Lamar, Eb Shapto Shabbat Liolam, just like keeping Shabbat, the Shmirav Shabbat is forever. So too, the reverence that we have to give to the temple itself is also forever. And so I thought this was kind of an interesting twist at the end because it's kind of, in a way, like part of what the Gemara is trying to say here is that like the physical space is actually not what's important. It's it's the what we do with the physical space, the way we treat the physical space is more of a reflection of the fear of the year that we have. I hate using the word fear of the reverence that we have for God. But yet, sort of at the end, the Gemara lands on a place saying, but yeah, but even if the temple isn't there, you're still going to keep these things because there is something about the place itself as well that we're keeping it a certain way and, and we need to treat it a certain way. So that piece I thought was kind of interesting at the end. Um, but I think the Gemara here is being sensitive to sort of a fear that when we have the Beit HaMikdash, it's not worshiping the temple. 
It's really about the kavanot you have, about how you worship, the, the intentions you have of how you worship God while you are there. But that's what gives the space sanctity, is that God commanded you to build it, to worship there. It's not the place itself which is sanctified. Okay. Um, I I want to recall that we had the same discussion about, not the same discussion, but a discussion about not making a, a Beit Knesset a shortcut back, I think, in Brachot. I think that's how long ago it was, right? The idea that, again, it's a question of what is the space used for and how do you treat it with reverence? I find it less practical to think of anybody using the Temple Mount or meaning nowadays the Temple Mount or back in the day, the actual Beit HaMikdash as a shortcut, you know, like how would that actually work? But um, but I I know the issue is from a shul is a little bit more practical. You know, if you want to get from, you want to cut through the building, let's say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but right, we do treat shuls this way a little bit also as well. Okay, um, I want to jump to the, uh, later on I'm a bet. Um, there's a lot of discussion here, and I know you're Dana, you talked about this, that this is taking, is going back to the question of um, finding a case of a mitzvah assay that would override a positive commandment that would override the negative commandment, where the negative commandment has a punishment of karit. And so the Gemara says, well, perhaps maybe you would say we're going to say that this is coming from the issue of, of kindling, of lighting fires. Because we know that there's a verse, right? There's a verse in Shmot, Exodus 35, that says you will not kindle fire, meaning uh, ignite fire throughout all of your and all of your dwellings, I suppose, um, on the Sabbath day. And it, the interesting part of that, of course, is that it's its own verse that singles out this particular malacha, you know, of lighting, of lighting, of igniting, which is also on the list anyway of the Lamatat Malacha once you come to the Mishnah. So the fact that it's a separate verse makes here makes um, the school of Rabbi Ishmael say, well, that same verse then comes to, perhaps it comes to mean that there is um, there's something additional that's learned from it, right? Matal Mudomar. Um, it says, So the Gemara is, you know, a little bit puzzled about what's going on, about what, about the, about the possibility of using this verse as a way to teach again a positive commandment that would override a negative commandment of karet because, because this is this is a negative commandment of, of karet, right? So the Gemara says, well, what is the meaning of the verse when it says this? Right, if the halacha is according to Rabbi Yossi, then it's coming to teach that the person who lights a fire on Shabbat, according to Rabbi Yossi, is only is only a a regular negative commandment, meaning not the not the same punishments as all the other lamatet malachot, um, which is an unusual position, I believe. And then if you say that it's according to Rabbi Natan, then why then why was it singled out? It's singled out, you know, in its own verse to separate to distinguish between the various. Prohibited malachot on Shabbat to say that each one of them carries its own um, penalty, which I think ends up being the more normative approach with regard to this particular verse and the fact that igniting fire is singled out. And then the Gemara goes on. So the fact that we have this prohibition 
is singled out from the general list of malachot or the general idea of malachot, really, that's in the Torah. Divrei Rebiosi, Rabbi Natan. Wait, did I? I'm sorry. The Gemara repeats. The Gemara brings a brayta that cites exactly these positions that Rabbi Natan Rebiosi already said that we've just explained. Fine, I'm sorry, I did not mean to repeat that. The uh, Amarava. So then Rava says as follows. He is coming to explain the school of Rabbi Shmuel. Tana Moshavot Kakashile. Moshavot Matul Mudlomar. Rabbi Rava, or picking up on the school of Rabbi Shmuel, is picking up on this word Moshvotechem in the verse. Right? And the question is, what does it mean, Moshvotechem? Like, where what where else would you be lighting your fires? Right? What does it mean that you're lighting your fires in your dwellings or in your um in your homes, in your habitats, right? So the Gemara says, sharpens this question and says the obligations of Shabbat, positive and negative, apply to the person. They apply to the person no matter where you are, right? It's not about where you are in your location. It's the fact that you're not supposed to do Malacha on Shabbat. Wherever, I, I mean, we know enough about time zones to say wherever Shabbat is at that moment, right? So then what does it mean to say again in this verse? Like, why is that there? So the Gemara, there's an attempt made to answer it. So there's a student, and he's not named, who says in the name of Rabbi Yishmael, that because there's a verse that says explicitly in Devarim that if a person has committed a sin that has a death sentence, then Shomeani ben Bachol ben then we would assume that we would have that death penalty administered, whether it would be on a weekday or on Shabbat. Meaning, there's a mitzvah to put this person to death, the one who has violated a commandment in such a way that he would be, you know, carry a death sentence. Umani what do we understand from the verse when it says the person who desecrates Shabbat is put to death? Beshar malachot. So let me understand that that applies to all the other malachot. Chutz mimitat beitin. But it's not going to apply to um, to uh, a death penalty punishment that's coming from a court, right? Meaning we don't actually you, we don't actually put the people to death on Shabbat. We might think that anything. We might think that. The verse that the verse of putting the person to death would apply for all the malachot, and that but the but the we would never think that it would be done on Shabbat. Once you've got a beitin saying motumat that he had the person has to be put to death, the presumption here is that that would then even be administered on Shabbat. Oh, and this is where it gets tricky because the gemara does a bit of flip flopping here. Oh, eno ella afilu mitat beitin. Is it that the court imposed? Um, death sentence would be required on Shabbat? Or would we say that even the court-imposed death sentence is included as a li- in the list of prohibited malachot on Shabbat, and you can't do it on Shabbat? Meaning, are you obligated to put a person to death on Shabbat, or are you prohibited to do so? As I say, a little bit of flip-flopping. flip-flopping. And so the Gemara concludes here, except for it's not really quite concluding, but at th- at this little passage of it, Gemara says, "Well, the very fact that it says it should be the person will be put to get put to death, the the language of put to death is understood, or there's an inference drawn to say that that should be on a weekday, but not on Shabbat." And then the Gemara goes back on itself. Oh, I know, Ella Shabbat. 
when it says maybe even not on Shabbat Talmud Lomar, again, this the verse that says that you should not ha- that you are prohibited from igniting a flame in all of your your dwelling places, whatever, right? So then um that is understood to mean I'm sorry, Ulahalan Huomer so there's another verse that takes that's in the book of Bamidbar in Numbers that said, and all of these things will be for you chukat mishpat, um, a statute of judgment, let's say, for all of your generations in all of your dwellings. And so the Gemara says, well, from all of this, ma moshavot hamurim lahalan babetin af moshavot hamurim kan babetin. So the same way that in the, in the book of Numbers, when it says it's talking about the court where judgment is is executed, not executed. I don't mean it literally for execution, right? But um, it's carried out. I don't mean carried out. I'm sorry. I'm saying the wrong thing. Where judgment is decided. That's what I mean. Um, so too, in the case of not igniting a fire, it's also brought to understood to apply to the court where the judges are there presiding. And then the Torah says, you shall not kindle any fire. You will not ignite any fire. And the same way that a court, one of the court, this is a little bit trickier, one of the court death sentences is burning and you can't get there without kindling fire. So then therefore, and again, use your thumbs here to get to the end, Therefore, the court-imposed death penalties will not override Shabbat because we have an explicit verse telling us that you cannot um, kindle, a f- ignite a flame on Shabbat, so you cannot carry out the Shreifa, um death sentence, and therefore it, we're not going to do any of the four mitopating, the death sentences that carry out by, by the court on Shabbat. I feel like this is like and, and like a, the beginning of understanding exactly how these Nashim Nizikin um, Gemaras do a lot of like using of the thumbs, right? Let's follow through this reasoning and then let's turn it on its head and let's turn it upside down and let's circle back and come to a conclusion that was nowhere where we were beginning to begin with. Um, but at the end of the day, at least at this point in the Gemara, I mean, and obviously it continues, it actually, you know, resolves the question of why is that verse its own thing, its own separate malach, its own separate prohibition on Shabbat as opposed to being included within all of the other malachot, what it doesn't do is really answer the question of a mitzvah ase um, canceling out the lotase that carries a mitzvah of uh, punishment of karate. One of the things I'm noticing here, Anne, is that we keep like, we're really upping the ante. Like we're going from like the least extreme case, right? A few tapim ago, just an ase overriding a lab. And now we're already on like the mitota beti, like they're really taking this as far as they can possibly take it. Yeah, yeah, and and again, I think it's. I mean, sure, the question of when a beti has to execute the people it has to execute is, in some ways, a practical question. But since we know that the beti didn't actually put that many people to death, it's kind of a. I don't know that it's boundary pushing, but it's certainly exploring how far does this go. Oh, I think it's boundary pushing. I mean, I think it's. No, I uh, I hear what you're saying because it's actually a practical question and could have happened could have actually happened even if it didn't happen often as opposed to I think some of the boundary pushing questions we put 
boundary pushing scenarios are more about, you know, really seems far-fetched to ever happen. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't know that you can put it in the boundary pushing category. But it's still, it's still, I feel like it's exploratory nonetheless, as opposed to saying like, okay, we need to know what to do this week. This is not a practical question to that degree either. Right, exactly. But, uh, you know, it's just interesting to sort of see the interplay. I, I, I'm liking about these Dapimar, and this is essentially sort of like what the essence of Yibum is in a way as well, which is, you know, we have like sort of traditionally like these 613 meets vote. And we don't really think very often about, but what happens when they like overlap with each other, right? When you have to do one thing, but, uh, you know, but, you know, maybe it involves doing it at a time where something's prohibited or it involves, you have to do a prohibition in order to get it done. And I think, therefore, what's really interesting about Yibum is, is that it's essentially a mitzvah constructed around allowing a prohibition. It's not about a general principle, but it's a really specific scenario. Yes, indeed. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.